Coming up on Tech Nation, Sir Mark Walport, former chief science advisor for the UK government and soon the first chief executive of UK Research and Innovation. You may be surprised at the UK's impact on our everyday technology. Then NPR's lead digital education correspondent, Anya Kamenetz. We'll talk about children and the impact of their screens. And on Tech Nation Health, Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us about the rise of the individual inventor in health and wellness. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Funny thing about science, you never know what data might become important. With a hypothesis, or at least a hunch in mind, you collect a bunch of data, and of course you also collect some standard additional data, like gender identity, and how long you've been doing this and that, and what's your favorite color, tree, dog's name, whatever. And finally, you sit down and look at the primary data you collected. Before long, your mind strays over to the data that was secondary, that was beside the point, and you sometimes start seeing things that are interesting. Such was the case of what was considered throwaway data for a sleep study at Brown University. Young, healthy people were recruited for a number of nights of sleeping, something young, healthy people are very good at. The throwaway data is always the first night's sleep. It's always disturbed sleep with subjects having a hard time getting to sleep, not settling down. And so the actual study of sleep starts with the data collected on day two. But one set of scientists had a hunch. Let's look at the throwaway data. It's expected to be scattered. It's always scattered. Maybe, just maybe, that means something. Some whales and dolphins and crocodiles and the like possess the capability for unihemispheric sleep. That means one side of their brain can go to sleep while the other remains vigilant. While the old saying about vigilance asks us to sleep with one eye open, the interesting part is the other eye. Not the one that's open, but rather the one that's closed. For these creatures, the closed eye means that the half of the brain it's connected to is sleeping. Later, they reverse which eye is closed, and over time, they get a pretty good night's sleep. And it seems they only do this when they need to be vigilant. Now back to the throwaway human data. The first night, it always takes longer to get to sleep, and yet it's the left brain, our logical, rational brain that shows increased activity, while the right brain shows sleep-related activity. It's our left brain that's awake. By the second night, the study participants fall asleep sooner, and the sleep-related activity can be seen in both sides of their brains. When you can't sleep that first night in a new place, is it your left brain that's keeping you up at night? The scientists were also able to measure that on the first night, the left brain was more sensitive to low-level noises, leading to even more brain activity. 
the left brain was on guard. While much more science needs to be done here and can be done, this should directly affect our expectations of ourselves in this modern world. For those of us who travel a lot, it sure looks like a bad idea to check into a new hotel every night. And it probably is a better vacation if you just go one place and stay put, as opposed to moving from place to place on every day, like people on a whirlwind bus tour of Europe. But sit tight. There will definitely be more science here, and it will provide even more input on how we should live. Just because we can get on a plane and fly to a new city every day doesn't mean we should. After all, we're only human. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Sir Mark Walport, the former chief science advisor for the UK government and soon to be chief executive for UK Research and Innovation. And that's what we'll be talking about, research and innovation. Then NPR's lead digital education correspondent, Anya Kamenetz. She's here today with The Art of Screen Time, how your family can balance digital media and real life. Then on Tech Nation Health, Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us about the surge of individuals working in healthcare who have become inventors. But first, Sir Mark Walport. Sir Mark, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you. You've traveled from the UK to the United States. In fact, you've come all the way to the West Coast. Why? Well, uh, two reasons. A, it's an extraordinarily entrepreneurial, innovative environment, and I've had the opportunity to visit some extraordinary researchers. I've been to Lawrence Livermore Laboratory. I've been to visit some of the foundations here. Um, I went to the Stanford Linear Accelerator, the Slack Laboratory yesterday. Um, I've had a really interesting time. Welcome to the mothership. (laughs) Yes, we can debate where the mothership is, but that's another matter. All right. (laughs) Um, And then then I'm going from here to the AAAS meeting in in, uh, Austin in Texas. Absolutely. The tremendous American Association for the Advancement of Science annual meeting at which so much 
is going on. I suspect there will be a number of British scientists there. I think quite a few British scientists because we put on a very good show. Um, <laughs> British science is very good. So we have 1% of the world's population, but 16% of the world's most highly cited scientific publications. Well, while the UK's geographic footprint is relatively small, just a smidge over half the size of California, you're amazingly productive. Like if yes, we look at biotech and the life scientists, for example, you rank number two in innovation. And that doesn't yeah. count the output of all the scientists we stole from you. Absolutely. Well, we, got, we get a few back. <laughs> you do get a few back. How would you describe the innovation that's going on in the UK? Well, I think it does build on an extraordinary scientific research heritage. Um, we are at an extraordinary time where we've got some amazing global challenges where we badly need innovation. So if we're going to tackle the consequences of having more than 7 billion humans on the planet rising to 9 billion, these pose some amazing challenges. But these are opportunities, actually. So uh, we've got aging populations. How do we keep people as they age healthier and contributing to the workforce for longer? Um, how do we deal with the challenges of moving people around? So the future of mobility... And recently, the British government published an industrial strategy white paper um, setting out a series of challenges, and data science and artificial intelligence was one of those, how people move around in the future, clean growth. Um, and, um, and, and, and so these are all very important topics for innovation, and we've got communities that are innovative. Well, you're the former chief science advisor to the U.K. government, the former yeah. director of the Wellcome Trust. And coming up in April 2018, you're going to become the first chief executive of the U.K. Research and Innovation. What that's is right. that? So that's the body that will bring together the different research agencies in the UK. So we have seven of them, which are known as research councils, and they're, some of them are very old. So the Medical Research Council is over 100 years old. Um, and we have an Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council. We have an Arts and Humanities Research Council and an Economic and Social Sciences Research Council. And then we have our Innovation Agency, Innovate UK, as well. And so what we're not going to do is break a system that works really well at the moment, but... Given the sorts of challenges I've talked about, you know, if we're going to tackle the challenges that climate change bring, which are really around energy policy, then we need not only engineers, physicists, all sorts of scientists, chemists, but we also need social sciences because we need to understand how people respond and think about all of this emerging technology. And, of course, the arts are very important in this because engineering is only useful if it's made useful for humans, and we do that through good design. Well, we've heard so much about STEM, S-T-E-M, yeah. science, technology, engineering, and math. And there is a growing movement. It's called STEAM, yes. adding arts to the endeavor, into Absolutely. the mix. Uh, of course, it's a misconception to think that the scientists, the engineers, the techies and mathematicians, that you know that they're all big friends. Um, but now we add in the liberal arts people, they've got to integrate with all of those. Well, I think that's right. But I, I'm not sure there is that much resistance. If we're to work most effectively, both to answer the critical research questions that we face, um, but also to provide the innovation, the products that are needed, then we really do need to bring together the science, the technology, and the engineering with the arts. And I sort of slightly joke that the first industrial revolution was powered by steam. And in that case, it was the steam engine. 
and that caused an industrial revolution. It enabled urbanization, mass production, uh, but it had huge social consequences as well. This industrial revolution is also powered by steam, but it's actually science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics. And within the arts, I'm, I'm using it broadly, it is the liberal arts. It's uh, historians understanding how people have responded in the past to technological change, uh, but it is also uh, the arts and design in particular. And if you look at one of our UK exports, uh, uh, Johnny Ives, Sir Jonathan Ive, he helped make Apple rich, and it was because of design. Well, we know Johnny Ives, and we know him with Apple, but we insist he's American now. Well, <laughs> he, he, but he, he, he started at uh, the Northumbria College of Art, actually. Well, I think it's really very interesting. We have so much technology going on, and we feel so America-centric, whether we're talking blockchain, the Internet of Things, quantum computing, uh, all the mobile revolution. But there's been a tremendous effort of innovation that has come out of the UK in all those areas. Oh, that's absolutely right. And, I mean, if you go to uh, the Internet and the World Wide Web, of course, the Internet started with DARPA. But the World Wide Web was actually Tim Berners-Lee um, working at CERN and working out. So, you know, this is a really good example of how people exploring very fundamental science, you know, questions about the um, working of atoms uh, and molecules, devise technologies to solve their problems that have had global impact. And the World Wide Web is sure one of those things. Um, but if you look at the history of UK research and innovation, um, it is quite extraordinary. Um, uh, from uh, Crick and Watson and Crick, and of course Watson was an American postdoc working in Cambridge, Crick, uh, 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 an English physicist doing the structure of DNA, right through to one of the Nobel Prizes this year for Richard Henderson at the Laboratory of Molecular Biology in Cambridge for cryo-electron microscopy. That's freezing uh, molecules in very, very thin layers of rather special ice and being able to look at them under the electron microscope in such a way that you can determine their structure. But that one laboratory has produced 11 Nobel Prizes, 16 Nobel Prize winners. I mean, that is the most extraordinary testament to the, the, you know, the strengths of UK science at its very best. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn. My guest today is Sir Mark Walport, the former chief science advisor for the UK government and former director of the Wellcome Trust. Sir Mark will become the first chief executive of UK Research and Innovation in April 2018. Well, one of the reasons that we can do all of this transition of technology, of people, is that, what did they say, we're, we're people divided by a common language. <laughs> but also, we have some, we've had special relationships, we've had, we're putting agreements in place to foster that interconnection on innovation. That's exactly right. I mean, I was in Washington just uh, a couple of months ago with the then British UK Science Minister Joe Johnson signing a, a, a science and technology cooperation agreement at the State Department. Um, but that, of course, it was building on uh, decade after decade of research collaboration, you know, going back uh, over a century. So uh, our relationships are very deeply embedded, and many UK scientists have spent time working in uh, laboratories and in leading companies in the United States, and vice versa. This has been a two-way exchange. In and it's cultural because actually I think we both do research in rather similar ways. It's actually about empowering young researchers 
liberating them to ask interesting questions and not, as it were, be subservient to a professor who tells them what to do. You know, if we want to be a, get people to be creative, we have to liberate them at a very early stage. Here in the United States, we don't have everyone integrated. We have NIH, we have the National Science Foundation, we have many things going on in which research uh, can be done. So do you interact with each of them? How do you do that? Yes. And I mean, it's worth saying that with the formation of UK research and innovation, what we're not trying to do is to create a single monolithic structure where you get one go within um, UK Research Innovation. We have the Medical Research Council, which is the UK equivalent of the National Institutes of Health, though not quite with the same amount of money. Um, and we have the other research councils, which sort of broadly cover the area of the Nat um, National Science Foundation. Um, but I mean, the answer is that we have strong partnerships and relationships with um, uh, NSF, with NIH. I'll be doing a session at the that AAAS meeting in Austin with Franz Cordova, who is the director of the National Science Foundation. Um, and so we have lots of relationships. And also in the UK, uh, we have other funding sources as well. So we have quite rich private funding sources, and the Wellcome Trust, which I had the privilege of directing for 10 years, was one example of that. Well, you were director of the Wellcome Trust, which many people in the U.S., I apologize for this, are not familiar. In many ways, it's not unlike the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which we are familiar with. What can be accomplished in an NGO or nonprofit organization, as we say here, that can't really be accomplished by government? Well, I think, uh, uh, and the Wellcome Trust in many ways, is, uh, historically was a precursor to Bill and Melinda Gates. It was founded by, in the will of a, in fact, an American uh, pharmacist originally who emigrated to the UK in the uh, latter part of the 19th century and set up a company. And he left that company in the hands of charitable trustees. And actually, it became very valuable through the drugs it produced after his death. But it's a foundation now with an endowment of over £20 billion, so you know, well over $20 billion. Um, it funds about a million pounds, uh, sorry, a billion pounds each year. So it's a very large philanthropy indeed. I mean, it's second in the world to Gates Foundation in biomedicine and was the biggest until the foundation came along. But what a foundation can do is it's not there to substitute for what the government should be doing. It can actually really pursue the vision of its founding philanthropist and really focus in a particular area. Um, and so the Wellcome Trust focused on achieving extraordinary improvements in human and animal health. The Gates Foundation has very much focused on you know, issues around poverty, particularly the health of poor people. We were just talking about STEAM, you mm. know, and uh, what mistakes you could make if you didn't understand the nature of being human and you're designing technology and medicine and that type of thing. When we're talking about the Wellcome Trust, we're talking about the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, you're going out to the world massive areas of poverty or yes. or mass populations with a particular problem that have, has to be solved. If you don't understand the culture, in addition to you don't understand the nature of being human, all the technology in the world isn't going to help. No, that is absolutely right. And I think you always have to, as it were, try and look through the eyes of the people that you're working with to understand where they're coming from. But it's very interesting because when you ask young people about you know, what they think about science and engineering and technology, you get the most enthusiasm from young people in the developing world where they know that they have challenges that can only be solved by science, technology and engineering. When you come further north, be it in Europe or in the United States, youngsters rather tend to take 
science for granted. They use it all the time. They have these boxes that they look into and play with all day, and they don't really think too much about the technology inside them. If you are struggling to get water, um, if there's shortage of food, then you know that science, technology, and engineering is part of the solution. And again, that's one of the things that both philanthropies and governments are important. So actually, the UK government spends 0.7% of the gross domestic product of, uh, uh, on uh, development assistance. And so that's a really important part of what UK research and innovation does. So we work with partners in the developing world uh, to develop technological other solutions for um, the challenges they face, but also to develop the careers of people in the developing world as well, because actually at the end of the day, what we need to do is get them in a position where they can solve the challenges themselves. So there's a very big, it's called capacity development, which is about how you develop the capacity of very smart individuals in those countries to work in engineering, in health, in education. Um, and then, of course, you need to develop the institutions as well because they need places to work. So I'll give you an example of something that's had a, a, a really transformative effect, and this was um, uh, work that was done in Kenya. It was a grant that the UK uh, Department for International Development provided that helped with the development, and that was the development of M-Pesa. So M-Pesa, which is mobile money essentially, has been extraordinarily important because it's empowered, it's enabled people to transfer small amounts of cash by just using a mobile phone and essentially texting it. And alongside that, you can then provide information so that a subsistence farmer can actually know what a crop price is and doesn't get ripped off by someone in the middle. So it's a very good example of how technology enables economic development. But, I mean, there are pro projects around malaria, um, work done by investigators in, funded by the Wellcome Trust mainly in, in Thailand on the development of artemisinin as an anti-malarial drug. Uh, first originally traditionally a Chinese traditional medicine um, used for treatment of fever. But, I mean, that's been transformative. These are all areas where you can make a huge difference to the health and well-being of people um, in other parts of the world. And then uh, in the recent Ebola epidemic in West Africa, where uh, UK scientists work and researchers and also uh, people who delivered aid during the crisis worked in um, Sierra Leone, the Americans worked in Liberia, the French in Guinea. That's really important stuff. Before all these accomplishments, you were a medical scientist, a professor at Imperial College London. What kind of research did you do? I worked on autoimmune diseases, particularly a disease called lupus, and how it related to try and understand the sort of genetic susceptibility, and in particular how uh, a part of the immune system, it's the sort of hardwired part of our immune system that defends us against infection, how when there were genetic inherited abnormalities in that, that predisposed people to develop autoimmune disease. Now, that said, you can accomplish far more now with all the work that you're able to do. My question is, what do you miss about doing research, about being a scientist on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, I'm still a scientist on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm just working in different ways. And scientists, and so there's something really important about the scientific approach and method. It's about, first of all, being rigorous and questioning. Um, it's about being analytic, about... Um, being numerate, 
um, about communication, actually. So I'm still practicing science and to some extent medicine because of the way I work with colleagues as well. So it, it's, I, I don't miss it in the sense that if you're busy and you're doing something that's enjoyable and exciting and you have the you know, privilege of being able to you know, think your way through problems, that's immensely exciting. So I don't consider I've stopped science. I'm just doing it in a different way. And helping other people to do science is you know, a really important thing to do. And that's what a good grant funding agency should do. It's not only about, as it were, waiting for a grant application to come through the door and then you know, deciding whether to fund it or not through expert review. It's about how you can catalyze researchers and innovators to do things they wouldn't be able to do otherwise. And that's really exciting. So in two months' time, at mm. the recording of this interview, you're going to be taking over UKRI. Yep. And... Uh, you must be chomping at the bit, I know. What are your personal plans? I mean, it's not just walking through every building and saying, okay, everybody, get to work. I mean, there's there's more to it than that. Well, I mean, there, there's a, there, you're absolutely right. And, I mean, this isn't – it won't, as it were, start from scratch on the 1st of April. We've been working extremely hard with a, t a team of us, and it really is a team. This is a team effort, um, putting it together. Um, and so people have been working at this now for uh, two years or more, actually. Um and uh, so it's everything about having an organization that's up and ready to go where the staff get paid at the end of April, which is quite important. Um, but the important Good thing number is, one goal. Yeah, it is. <laughs> uh, yes, you, you do need to pay your staff and the researchers that we uh, support and employ directly as well. Um, but no, I mean, the, the, the real opportunity, the challenge is working with the team of extraordinarily talented leaders that we have who run each of the nine elements of UK research and innovation. And the pleasure is working them to actually work out how we can make sure that the sort of whole of UK research and innovation is greater than the sum of the individual parts. So it's a really exciting prospect. Well, Sir Mark, I hope you come back and see us. You're always welcome on Tech Nation. Thank you. My guest today is Sir Mark Walport. In April 2018, Sir Mark will become the first chief executive of UK Research and Innovation. More information is available at ukri.org. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Anya Kamenetz is NPR's lead digital education correspondent. Both as a journalist and as a parent, the subject of children and the impact of technology is highly important. Her most recent book is The Art of Screen Time, How Your Family Can Balance Digital Media and Real Life. She opens it with a story about her youth. When I was a very young girl, I have this imprinted memory of Poltergeist. And the movie featured a very young blonde girl sitting at the end of her parents' bed. And in my memory, I was also sitting at the end of my parents' bed as a young blonde girl. In the scene, the end of the credit day is, is happening. Television is coming to an end. And the national anthem plays. And then a terrifying green hand of ectoplasm comes out into the room. And, you know, in my memory, I was that little girl. And I was screaming in so much fear. Um, and it really made an impression on me. So we really do know that screens... And what you see on a screen will really imprint on these kids. Oh, absolutely. I mean, listen, children's brains are optimized to take a hold of stories and, and have their imaginations run wild with them. And when media brings all the arts of the storyteller, the images and the music, it, it, it can make an indelible impression for, for good and for not so good. 
Well, we're not just talking about the screens of television. We're talking about all kinds of screens here. Right. So obviously television's been with us for a very long time and video games have too and the debates over those. But the smartphone and the tablet era is really just a decade old and parents are feeling that there's something a little bit different. You know, and if you are out and about, I, I mean the scenes that come that people mention again and again is, you know, the child on the tablet in the restaurant and the baby on the phone in the stroller. So the idea that we have these machines with us all the time and that the access to entertainment, edification, distraction is pretty much infinite. I'm speaking with Anya Kamenetz, the author of The Art of Screen Time, How Your Family Can Balance Digital Media and Real Life. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation and Tech Nation Health are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on Tech Nation Health, the rise of the individual inventor in health and wellness. From nurses to patients, you can make it yourself. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Anya Kamenetz, the author of The Art of Screen Time, How Your Family Can Balance Digital Media and Real Life. A lot of people have been talking about the technology itself or the information inside. And so initially I was thinking, ooh, you're talking about screen time. You know, it's like, ooh, is that limiting? And then I realized that the screen is where the human interacts with the technology, and the screen actually is what demands your attention. So if you're looking at the screen, you ain't doing anything else. I mean, that's a deep evolutionary um, design, right? So because things are bounded by a frame, when images are moving back and forth across that frame, we want to track it and we want to see where that image goes. And that's something that is just very innate. And to combine that with the lights and the music and also, you know, the the repetition with a little bit of variation, those are all things that are just very, very sticky to to minds in general, but to young minds in particular. 
We like to talk about the science, and you write, the research landscape, it turns out, is marked by large gaps and much hotly contested territory. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, of course, as a journalist, you just hope that you can call up a couple of experts and hear everything that there is to know about something. But, you know, when it comes to media effects research, right, first of all, they're very separate strains. Like pediatricians look at obesity. The sleep researchers look at the sleep re- science. Um, ophthalmologists are interested in the eye strain. Psychologists are interested in the um, the social import of what's happening on the screens. And then media violence is something that's been investigated for decades and decades, going back to the 1960s with Bobo the Clown Bobo the Clown was a clown that children watched him being beaten up on a video, and then they went on to do exactly the same thing in a lab, um, which kind of formed the foundation of media violence research. Um, And then the people who today are using sort of brain scan methods and other kinds of experimental methods to look at the effects of, you know, different kinds of games and tablets. The thing is, Moira, once you create um, an experiment uh, and you have a certain kind of app that you're using or you want to test contingent video or video chat, by the time the experiment's published – that app is not on the market anymore if indeed you used one that was on the market. So the amount of information we have about the the devices and the apps that kids and parents are actually using right now is really, really small. It's very interesting to me to see where the linkages are. Um, First of all, sleep. We've had people in here telling us about how important sleep is. You knit together everything in the day. You you move to a different part of your memory, the things that you learned in the day and all of this. And are we seeing an impact with children in sleep? We are, and it's not enough talked about. I mean, as much as people say that they're interested in, in bedtime. And I, w- I would say sleep is one of the major battles of, of parents today for young children anyway, babies for sure. Um, but the light that shines in their eyes and close to their faces with the handheld devices does seem to have an intense effect. It, it causes sleep to be more shallow, to be shortened, bedtime moved off, and more disturbances in their sleep. And that's something that, you know, the reason that the sleep researchers feel that it's very overlooked is that it can in turn cause a lot of the other negative effects that are associated with screens. So obviously people who don't sleep as well are more prone to obesity. That's true for children as well. Um, Anxiety, depression, behavior issues, mood issues, attention issues, those are all linked to poor sleep. And so some of the downstream effects we might see with media um, might actually be connected back to the media interfering with sleep. So you could look at these technologies all day long in your house and the people on them, but you have to kind of step back and see what's the profile of these kids in my house, mm-hmm. <laughs> and is there anything I'd like to change? And gee, how much? How where are the screens? What is the interaction with it? You have to kind of put it all together. You do, and I really advise that parents take a holistic look at this. I think a lot of the conversation has sort of posed screens as being something like radon gas or lead in the water, that it's an environmental toxin that is going to have invisible, scary effects on your children. And the fact is that, well, we don't know for sure if that's true or if that's not true, but there are observable effects in your children. So there, there are very easy things that you can look for to say, does my child have a problem with screens? Um, and those would be include things like disturbances with sleep, things like disturbances with weight, um, behavior issues, if they have an explosive reaction when the screen's turned off, um, if they seem to have trouble concentrating, media is their only preferred activity, they get upset when it's turned off. Um, and so these are behavioral things. And so when someone calls in and says, you know, my child's doing this or they're playing this kind of game or is two hours a day okay, the answer is always look at your kid. 
And maybe. Fig- <laughs> maybe. That's right. I don't know, but you might know. You might know. If you watch and pay attention, you might realize what could be causing a problem. Well, even what we would consider knowledgeable expert recommendations are changing. Until recently, the American Academy of Pediatrics offered the rule, no TV before age two. Whoops. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So Dr. Victor Strasberger, who was one of the architects of that rule, told me in the book, we made it up. We had no evidence for it. And we caught holy hell for it. Well, they did. <laughs> what happens when the second child comes? <laughs> I mean, what they found was that, in fact, 90% of parents weren't following the rule. And that was one of the impetuses for revising it. In fact, um, Dimitri Kostakis, one of the other authors of the recommendation, said that they're taking a harm reduction approach. So with the new guidelines, it's very provocative phrasing, right? With the new guidelines, what they're trying to say is we want to meet parents where they are and we want to be realistic because it's no good for doctors to warn parents away from something when they're just not listening. We've been talking about younger children. And as the kids get older and they're going to school, it's not just being at home. It's everywhere. There's there's technology everywhere. How do you keep track of what technology is interacting with your children and vice versa? And how do you take the sum total of that? Well, it's really, really difficult. I mean, many schools have introduced one-to-one programs, and then they can always encounter tech in after-school programs and at friends' houses. Um, You know, as the kids get older, counting the screen time becomes less of a useful approach. You do want to have a home rhythm that you establish, right, where there's, you know, it's, it's helpful for many families to have balanced time, time that they're off screens, time that they spend together. Um, but you can't really count it minute by minute. And maybe it's not the best approach anyway. What you want to do is help focus them on more productive uses of tech. You write about a wilderness-based treatment program for technology addiction. Let's go there. Sure. So I want to be careful about the term addiction. It's it's a live term in debate right now. The medical profession is split over it. Um, and so actually the, the, the program Outback that I talk about, as well as there's another program called Summerland, which is a camp setting, um, they don't use that term. They talk about um, overuse habits and problematic use. And what they're really talking about, they have a functional definition, right? Is this pruning away your other relationships? And are you, um, you know, having trouble with school, having fights with your fr- family? Are you sneaking around to use the tech? And the cases that they see are really pretty extreme. I mean, it, oftentimes it co-occurs with other conditions like uh, ADHD or being on the autism spectrum, certainly depression and anxiety. But um, the largest percentage of kids who are seeking treatment for this are boys, and they're boys who are playing video games. And they're playing video games to such an extent that really their other social skills are falling away. It's interesting because your mind can only do one thing at a time. If you have a feeling, you can't have multiple feelings at once. You'd have to flash between the feelings. But if you can engage with something so you don't have to feel the feeling, or you can engage with something so that you can kind of forget you got this bad thing going on over here, and every teenager has all of that in spades, (laughs) you can see why these playing video games or constantly on your phone or on a computer would really be, you know, a place to go for a teenager. Oh, absolutely. I think there's such a um, kind of a, an 
an interlocking between the needs of the developing teenage mind and what these devices provide. And, you know, it's it's social media so often for girls and it's the game so often for boys. So, so one of the boys I talked to who went into one of these treatment programs, he said, you know, it started out as something fun, the games and Netflix. And, and before I knew it, it was something that allowed me to avoid my problems and, and forget about the world. And so um, – and then for his mother, it was so interesting too. She was obviously a caring mom, an entrepreneur, single mom with joint custody, three kids. And she said, you know, this seems so benign. You know, the kids are there. They're in your home. They seem safe. Hour after hour goes by and you just don't even notice. Oops. And she said her therapist wasn't aware of it either as a, as a standalone issue. So the family was in therapy, but uh, they hadn't fingered the devices as being a problem in and of themselves. What do they do at these treatment centers? I mean, mainly they get the kids away from the devices. I think that's just that's it's as simple as that. You know, 40, 40 miles away in Utah from the nearest electrical outlet, and then um, being engaged in wilderness therapy. You know, I'm not endorsing one treatment plan or another, or even the notion of treatment. Um, I also visited an ordinary summer camp uh, last summer, where you know the American Camp Association has banned phones for its kit campers all across the country, and they're very serious about it. They send people home, um, and you know. T- Teenagers and even 10-year-olds told me that it was difficult at first to unplug and get away. And they do have campers who bring in decoy phones or their parents will mail them a phone um, because they just can't figure out why they should be away from them. But after a while, they really start to appreciate it and the break from the device, not necessarily in a therapeutic sense, but just to say, hey, it's great to be face-to-face and not to be worrying about what someone else is doing somewhere else. There is a lot to be said about the idea that if you have a problem, you don't need to bring in all the forces, like this is some big intervention. Let's remember that you can't go to grandma, most grandmas, for advice on this. This is not, there's no generational experience here. We all together are trying to figure out what is this doing now? Because we never had it before. I completely agree with that. And I, as I've come to you know, delve into this research for the artist screen time and say, why is this causing so much anxiety to me and the parents that I know? I think it's because, right, we're naive to this new intervention in our, in our lives. And we don't have those built up conventional wisdom or little sayings from grandma to figure out how to act around the phones. And so when you see... Um, you know, what the things that the kids are doing or their parents are doing. It's very easy to judge and to shame and blame, but I I would really love to see an open conversation about it so we can develop some of that immunity and some of those responses that can help us manage this better. The key of you saying, well, we, you know, sort of need a regular routine in the home and, you know, getting ready for bed and having, what are we going to do with that? has to do with habit and expectations and knowing what to do with our time. And if your habit is turning to technology, you got to replace it with other habits, not just make the decision you're not going to do it. That's right. And, and and we're talking about something very hard, which is change, right? Changing what we do and how we do it. And, you know, and this reflects so much on parents as well, because my contention is that especially millennial parents, we're the first generation that grew up online ourselves. And as young parents, especially as new parents, we have a lot of forces drawing us towards social media and drawing us toward being on our phones. Whether you're a working parent, you're trying to be 
online, be two places at once a lot of the time, or you just, you know, a sharenter. They call that sharenting, right? You want to post <laughs> and, and share those little moments of parenting. And so you actually have your phone with you on purpose when you're around your kids. But then you're so you're always prone to be drawn into a conversation that doesn't involve them. And that's really um, – it's so hard for parents to set limits if they can't follow them themselves. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Anya Kamenetz, the lead digital education correspondent for NPR. And you may know her from her previous books, including The Test and Generation Debt. She's here today with The Art of Screen Time, how your family can balance digital media and real life. You say, hash out your own use of screens. So we're going to... We've been looking at the kids. Now we got to look at us. And it's time-honored. Kids have done it forever. No matter what you say they should do, they're looking at you. They really are. So you got to look at your own behavior. And what should you look at in your own behavior? One of the experiments that's kind of like a scared straight experience is uh, Dr. Edward Tronick's still face studies. And these go back um, quite a ways to the 1980s. And he used them to look at the effects of maternal depression. So it's a different context. But, you know, that said, in this very simple experiment, um, a mother and a baby are face to face. And the mother is told to adopt a totally blank expression no matter what the baby does. And so the baby is giving her smiles. He's giving her giggles. He's laughing. He's clapping. And she's not responding, not responding, not responding. Four-month-old baby, within a few minutes, his stress hormones have skyrocketed. He's turned beet red and he's screaming in distress without any yelling, any any kind of displeasure. It's just the lack of responsiveness that just is is setting off all his alarms. And a four-month-old baby seems to remember this. If you repeat it a few weeks later, he'll freak out even faster. So this is a paradigm to think about when you, if you do have that phone in your hand and you're a little bit less responsive or you're responsive more slowly to those contingent interactions, the babbling that comes with the little babies or the bid for attention with the older kids, you know, what is that doing? What are we withdrawing from our kids and what are we keeping from our kids if we do that too much? And yet we now have divorce agreements that talk about virtual visitation rights. Yes, that is very important. The flip side, right? Technology is used to keep families together and to keep families in touch. And it's very, very important for, you know, if your husband or wife has to, happens to be deployed or if you are a migrant worker family, families that cross borders. Um, without technology, we couldn't have the, the family relationships that we do. And I think a lot of parents really treasure that. I know for myself right now as a working parent on the road, video chat makes it infinitely easier. So, you know, we have to recognize when we're using with intention, we can use the technology to connect. If we allow it to creep in without intention, it can cause more of a disconnect. Okay, so in the end, it's more than setting limits on time, place, and occasion. What else do you need to do? Um, I really want parents to think about the positives and how technology can bring joy and creation and intention and connection and discovery into our lives. And the way that we can promote that for our kids is to share screen time with them and share it in particularly in those uses and, and be creative about it and to remember that it's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be there for a purpose. So you can all do something together. Do the games together. Watch everything together. Joint engagement and avoiding solo use are the two watchwords of the new American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines. They really want parents to be in there with their kids to the extent that the kids will permit it. They won't always let you in on everything, and that's okay. They need to be with their peers too. But, you know, if we care enough and to be worried about what our kids are doing online, we should care enough to investigate and ask questions 
How was school today? How was after school? What did you see online? Got any cool videos to share with me? Here's one I want to share with you. And then, you know, you're handing the device back and forth, and it's not a question of I'm surveilling you and I'm reading every message that you write, but it's a question of we have an ongoing dialogue that involves the digital world as well. Actually, I was just seeing something really cute. It was two kids watching a smartphone, obviously a video on smartphone, and one of them had an earplug in one ear, and then the other one was in the other kid's ear, and the two of them turned to each other and laughed, and then they went back to watching it. Mm -hmm. And so they clearly were watching it together. I mean, like, that's a pretty nice setup. It's funny that in 2018, we'd be nostalgic for the shared screen experience. (laughs) Which was supposed to be terrible because we weren't talking to each other. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And, and, you know, and to to draw that distinction, right, I mean, a lot of pediatricians promote the family movie night now as being something like take down your second screen and and share one screen together. Um, You know, not, not that that's the only way the families can spend time together, but that it's a different way of watching. Now, I do want to make sure everybody remembers that... All kinds of technology is going to continue to crash on our heads. We don't know what's going to be available next year, the year after that, when your child's five years older than he or she is now. You have to be prepared to on the spot decide how to incorporate this technology. What's happening right now is that the smart home assistants are coming in and they're they're adding another character to the family. You know, children relate to those smart home assistants kind of like in a parasocial way, the way that they do to their favorite characters. And, you know, you need to have to talk with your kids about what's human and what's not human and what is, you know, what does it mean that Alexa is listening all the time and is that really a good thing or a bad thing? Um, and that's just one tiny step forward into what's going to be a dizzying future where screens are not like, they're not going to be bounded any longer. They're going to be in the shared space space with us. For decades, everyone just worried about kids watching television. Is anyone still worried about television anymore? I mean, they should be. (laughs) Because the preponderance of the evidence we have is about television. Television promotes obesity. Um, You know, it's more than two hours a day of television that um, doubles your risk of obesity. You know, television is what we where we have the most solid evidence around media violence. And by the way, most of what kids are doing with screens is still watching videos. They may be shifting to the mobile devices, but video watching across platforms, video watching across devices is the number one activity. So, you know, whatever the alarm bells were about TV, it's not time to necessarily shut them off. It's just that it's become a much more complex picture. You point out that the last major federally funded research on children and media was television and behavior. It was by the NIH, and it was in 1982. Why aren't we funding anything in this area? There, there's a lot of potential answers to that question. Some of them might have to do with industry interests. Some of them have to do, might have to do with how balkanized the research field is, but there's lots of different people who all have their own interests. Um, you know, it may be starting to change. I think I'm, I'm noticing some momentum to try to, part as part of trying to hold the industry accountable, getting them to fund more research into what actually is happening. It's also very difficult when you're talking about please fund more research as opposed to I already have an alternative position that I want the research to prove. So it's easy to get a grassroots organization, easier to get a grassroots organization together if you say, here's our position that's counter to yours. But to say, please do some research and we may or may not have have an alternative position. That's a really good point. And it, it, it's dangerous, I think, because with that adversarial stance, how are we actually going to come to the, to the truth of things? 
Anya, it's been terrific. Please come back. See us again. I would love that. My guest today is Anya Kamenetz. The book is The Art of Screen Time, How Your Family Can Balance Digital Media and Real Life. It's published by Public Affairs. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies and breakthrough science. Today on Tech Nation Health, the rise of the individual inventor in health and wellness. Medical equipment has traditionally been the province of established companies with large amounts of capital. But chief correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us there's a surge of individuals working in healthcare who themselves are able to make a difference. We've talked on prior episodes about the empowered patient. Uh, and consumer in terms of their own health and medicine. But now we're in this era, sort of the empowered entrepreneur. You don't need to be, uh, you know, Fortune 50 biotech or medical device company or big pharma company to start making a difference in solving challenges in healthcare, pain points, I like to call them. Um, There's many pain points we all experience as individuals are going through with friends and family through healthcare challenges. And now there's some new routes to solve them, whether it's, you know, building and something as simple as an app to track your medication uh, compliance or adherence, reminding you to take a med, all the way to 3D printing uh, some sort of device that you could use in an intensive care unit. And what's exciting now is, again, we're able to democratize a lot of this innovation. You can buy a 3D printer now for a couple hundred dollars and prototype something. In fact, this is starting to happen in clinical settings. The idea of not just entrepreneurs, but entrepreneurs, entrepreneurship, nurses are starting to solve problems they identify every day. Uh, and there's a, a movement called uh, Maker Nurse, and now one called Maker Health, started out of Boston. And they've been creating these platforms now to have inside of clinics and hospitals where nurses, patients, doctors can see a challenge and sometimes MacGyver something that they might do as a one off, but then create platforms that can expand around the world. A couple examples might be, uh, you know, a foot-powered nebulizer. So instead of having a little uh, nebulizer, nebulizer, someone might have asthma and they need something to provide drugs in their oxygen. Usually they have to have a little pump. Well, uh, a technologist or someone working in a hospital figured out a way to make one foot-powered. That might be allowing this to happen in a more of a rural clinic, for example. We've seen um, uh, nurses sort of hack the stethoscope to make a little... uh, cover, a replacement cover that would be more efficient and less expensive. Um, we've seen you know, wound care, which takes a lot of time and money. Uh, now with nurses figuring out ways to make special padding for diabetic patients and, and spread that innovation in, in different settings. So this idea, again, that we can uh, build and innovate in unique settings, the idea now that we can have the practitioners seeing challenges and solve them and democratize that. And some of these are being adopted and sold by larger companies uh, so that we can distribute these innovations around the world is quite exciting. At Exponential Medicine a year ago in 2016, we had Tom Tikunalone Makers uh, who brought the lesson that you can't just innovate in a vacuum. They brought patients. Uh, actually, we did a sort of uh, maker session there over our four days of exponential medicine to solve the problems of a family that had three children with a severe disability. And in those three days, by meeting with the family and the children, seeing their pain points, seeing how they interact with technology like an iPad, one of the things that they developed there was a way, since their these children's hands were very unstable and shook, ways to enable them to point on an iPad by building a 3D printed grid. Pretty simple idea, but I think quite innovative in the first of its kind, and now that's being democratized around the world. So I encourage anybody out there who sees challenges in their own health element to 
try and come up with solutions. Maybe you need a 3D printer. Maybe you need the kid down the street who can build an app for you to be part of that solution. But almost anybody can build an app these days. So the kid down the street is going to teach you how to fish. I mean, teach you how to build an app. Right. Well, just like, you know, when I started building websites in, I don't know, the early, the mid-1990s, you had to learn HTML. Now you can go and we're called our WYSIWYG app. So you can go build your own website without really any technical ability. So the same thing is coming to uh, 3D printing, to using AI, artificial intelligence platforms, or to building an app. So we really have democratized the ability to innovate. And now to start a company, uh, you can go to you know, use Amazon cloud servers or uh, all sorts of platforms that used to have in-house can now be sort of uh, rented off the web. So there's really, we're really in this amazing age for entrepreneurs, not just in the developed world, but, but the developing world. And we have about 3 billion individuals who will be coming online with internet access over the next decade with help from things like Project Loon from Google and Facebook putting up satellites to provide internet access. So we have a, this whole hive mind we can leverage to solve problems from as simple as how to uh, address a, a problem in a particular clinic all the way to global health issues with sort of this new mindset. And I want people to really get the idea of these 3D printers because they're kind of saying, oh, what's, what's that about? You can actually build things that are in three dimensions, models. It layers it in one after another, different colors, different materials. Um, sometimes it's plastic. Mm -hmm. uh, other times it's uh, human tissue. We have all kinds of things right. we can print. And the whole idea, maybe you want a larger handle because you're arthritic. Maybe you want something that stops you from bumping. You can sit there and build that and adjust it and adjust it again. So you're in a standard design build mode for prototypes that can end up being a business or simply makes your life better. Right. And it could be for prototyping. It could be something that you're going to scan your hand. Let's say you need crutches. And, you know, those aren't quite very uncomfortable. Sort of one size fits all. You can adjust the height. Uh, but maybe you want to scan your hand, print a handle that matches your hand or your shoulder anatomy. So we can scan, modify, and print. And again, we can scan with a $50 scanner now. And the printers are getting cheap enough that they can be run through your smartphone. And these can begin democratized. One of our Singularity University companies called Made in Space designed and flew this first 3D printer to the space station, where now you can print out um, a ratchet if you've lost it or don't have a supply mission coming. Or uh, as they demonstrated with an astronaut who might have tweaked their finger, broke a finger or sprained it, you could print out a 3D customized splint. And where this is heading is as 3D printing gets faster and cheaper, we can maybe print things in the clinic, whether it's your cast or an implantable medical device or eventually a complex organ. And with you thinking about it, that you could do it, the whole idea is that you can make things and take it to a new level. And that's a whole new thing for us. And take it to a new level almost anywhere. A company called Field Ready, they've gone to Haiti and places after disasters recently in Puerto Rico. They could 3D print medical equipment, whether it's a, a clamp to be used to uh, clamp the umbilical cord after birth or uh, part of a, a whole session for, setting for, um, uh, for uh, solar energy, you know, and, and something that might have been broken in the storm. So really a new way to democratize and speed up and, and lower costs for both innovation and, and implementation. Dr. Daniel Kraft is chief correspondent of Tech Nation Health and the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. For Tech Nation Health, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 
Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and BiotechNation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. Thank you.